Money Sense is brought to you by the Ellenbecker Investment Group, three-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau's Torch Award for Business Ethics and Integrity. The Ellenbecker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com. Listen to Money Sun Saturdays at 2 p.m. and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Christina Schnuckel, Director of Client Experience and a Wealth Advisor here at Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just east of Highway 164 and Capitol Drive in the Town Bank Building, and also in the Village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building across from Winkies. We also serve clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. Visit ellenbecker.com for more details. My guest today is Erin Lowry. She is the author of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you are a friend of the show that we've had you on before. Well, it's great to be back. I'm really excited to talk to you about this book today. This book, Broke Millennial, really resonated with me, both on a personal and a professional level. There were so many things where I was reading through that, where I felt that the conversations you were having with your dad could have been a conversation I was having with my, my parents or my first employer. I got my start in this industry just a smidge before the great recession back in, in 2007. So watching and going through that whole period of time with my clients and, but also with my friends, that we're just learning how to invest and feeling so emotionally defeated by watching what their parents were going through, it really has a lasting impact. And it's something that as we work today with our younger clients and um, kids of our current clients, you can see that lasting impact that it's really been there, that it's in the forefront of their mind, or at least even in the back of their mind about when's that next big drop coming and being kind of petrified about it. Yeah, I agree. The Great Recession really did a number. And now this pandemic, which it's so interesting with the pandemic, because obviously the market went on a tear. So from an investing perspective, a lot of people jumped in. But from a fear perspective, I think, especially for millennials who might have already been hesitant prior, and then maybe lost jobs, dealt with employment instability. It's It's been a real awakening, I think, and not necessarily in a positive way for a lot of people. For sure. We're going to have a whole new generation of traumatized investors coming from this pandemic. You know, definitely we've seen that too. Um, on the upside, we're big on education. And that's what I loved about your book. You always say that you don't give investment advice, but you're providing the tools to help millennials and really anyone educate themselves and take control of their financial future. So many of the, the younger clients that we work with this year, when we were telling them two years ago to set up their emergency fund, they really had that moment this past year during the pandemic where they said, I see the importance. This was life-saving. I don't know what we would have done without having these tools in place where we were able to save those funds because it's so easy to have the tendency to think that the good times are going to continue to roll and that we're not going to hit those difficult times. Absolutely. So Erin, tell me a little bit about how you approach this book and kind of where you were starting from, because there were a lot of personal stories that came out of this book that really sounded like you were at one point kind of finding your way through these exact same topics that millennials are dealing with today. Which I'm glad it read that way, because that was definitely the case. 
So Broke Millennial Takes on Investing is the second in my three-part Broke Millennial series. And it came about because I had written my first one, which is just called Broke Millennial, and then Stop Scraping By, Get Your Financial Life Together, that focuses on all of the basics. And when we talk about basics, credit scores, budgeting, building that emergency savings fund, how to handle student loan debt, just everything to build the foundation. And I had a very small chapter in that book on investing, really with the specific focus of investing for retirement, talking about 401ks, talking about IRAs, the importance of getting started early. And in that chapter, I reference a few other very iconic investing books like, hey, if you want to learn more, here are some other places you can go. And then I started getting emails and direct messages from people who are like, hey, loved your book. Try checking out some of those investing books you recommended. And I got to be honest, they're really confusing. Do you have anything that's a little more basic? And to be honest, no. Like the market just didn't have a great, they do have some dummies guides that those are good, but a lot of them are also more specific, like how to be a stock picker. It's not a holistic view of how to be an investor. And I knew that I wanted to write something that felt very relatable to millennials I think to a degree still holds for Gen Z and younger Gen Xers that addressed things that have changed in the marketplace. We're talking about robo-advisors, investing apps. Should I be investing when I have student loan debt? All of those questions that were much more specific to our generation also were not addressed in any of those investing books. So that was really what I was focusing on when I was writing Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. And also it was a way to push myself to learn even more about investing. I definitely had a very basic grasp on a lot of things. But the way that I like to position myself, because you mentioned already, I'm not an investing expert. I don't hold the credentials. I'm not out here giving people direct stock advice or anything like that. I like to think of myself as a translator. I'm a financial translator. I go out and interview very experienced, very smart people who have been in this industry for some of them longer than I've been alive. I'm 32. And that comes back with all of this great knowledge, but sometimes that knowledge is spoken in a way that's like just a few steps above where a lot of investors are. So I figure out how to bring it down to a level and in a language that a lot of people can easily digest and understand. That is so important. And I love that you called yourself a financial translator. And I might actually steal that (laughs) and use that with our clients because that is the key, I think, really to a successful financial plan. It isn't so much the stocks that you own or where you own or how you own them. It's really about understanding your plan. And that's something that I think is really taken for granted in our industry. I can't tell you how many clients I've met with that are not millennials who've been investing for years and have said something to me to the the effect of, this is the first time I really understood my plan. And I have two very strong emotions about that. First, it makes me feel really good that we were able to provide them that. Because if you don't understand your plan, how can you possibly have a sense of comfort that we're going to come out of that market correction or that you're going to be okay? But secondly, it makes me a little angry at our industry that we are communicating in ways that the average investor isn't able to understand. As you know from from talking to us before here, our founder, Karen Ellenbecker, is really passionate about education. And that's what attracted me to Ellenbecker is I didn't want to just talk at a client 
and try to show them how smart I was, but really talk with them and help them to understand their financial plan. So I, I absolutely love that financial translator word uh, job that you described. It's so important. And, um, you know, thank you for writing books like this and helping with that, because I do think that there is a myth that's been perpetuated that um, investing has to be super complex and it has to be super difficult. And our philosophy is that, no, sometimes simple is best in making sure that you understand your plan so that you can follow that plan when the market's good, but more importantly, follow that plan when the market's down and you're tempted to make a emotional move. Absolutely. The emotion and psychology element to all of this to me is incredibly fascinating. And it's a double-edged sword where there are elements of investing that are fairly easy to comprehend once it is explained to you in a language that is relatable and understandable. There's also sides of investing where I feel like I have read so much information. I have tried so many different types of way to understand it but I'm just never going to be that kind of an investor. Like it just, at the end of the day, it is not something that relates to me and excites me because there's so many different versions. But the problem is the kind of quote unquote sexy version of investing and all the, the meme stocks, the things that get all the press are the things that tend to be a little bit more dangerous for a rookie or a novice investor, even an experienced investor. But it's also unfortunately what tends to get the attention, the flash, make people excited as opposed to, hey, you know what you should do? Make sure that you get your full employer match, put your money into your 401k diligently every single month, ensure that money is actually invested and not just sitting there in a you know cash management account the whole time. That's what you need to do to get started. And part of it, I do feel is that we overall have done a disservice to people in some of the language that we use. One of the things that I come for a lot is to even just say saving for retirement. I think we're using the wrong language there. It's investing for retirement. You're not saving. Saving has a specific words. Words have meaning. And saying save for retirement is a complete misnomer of what you're doing. You are investing for retirement. And if you're not, you're doing something wrong. That money 100% needs to be invested. Even as you retire, some of that money needs to be invested. It doesn't need to all get cashed out because you could live for another three, four decades and you want to make sure that money is still growing for you. That's still a very long time horizon. And even throwing around words like time horizon, it's all jargon. So we just have to be very careful when we're talking to people who aren't as experienced. And on the flip side too, no one likes to feel dumb. So even if somebody is talking to a professional, even though they have, you know, disclosed, this is my first time speaking with a professional, I don't know a whole lot about this. If you throw out words or terminology that people don't know, they might not say, actually, sorry, could you stop and explain that to me? We all have an insecurity about our intelligence levels and are we communicating that we're competent and knowledgeable? If this is your first time doing something, of course you don't know how to do it. That's perfectly fine. Never feel embarrassed, no matter your experience level, to stop and have somebody explain something. And for writing my book, that was one of the biggest gifts for me is I was in a position where I could just constantly be like, oh, actually, sorry, could you explain that term further for me? I want to make sure the readers understand, of course. Could, could you explain that for me? And it was a great opportunity to learn more about elements of investing that I'd never even heard about before. Absolutely. Well, Erin, I am so excited to continue this conversation with you. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have more with Erin Lowry, the author of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. 
Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Christina Schnuckel, Director of Client Experience and Wealth Advisor here at Ellen Becker. My guest today is Erin Lowry. She is the author of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. And we've been talking today about how getting invested can be so hard, both from an emotional standpoint, but also from a knowledge standpoint of feeling like you're not really quite sure where to start from. Aaron and I were just talking about how some of the jargon that is used in our industry can really be a deterrent to helping our clients understand and helping investors get started with investing. Um, speaking of that jargon, you know, Aaron, you mentioned in the last few minutes, saving for retirement versus investing for retirement. And I wanted to circle back on that because I think that that's a really interesting notion that we talk about with our clients in slightly different terms, but that very same concept that I don't think people hear a whole lot about. Um, You hear everyone talks about retirement, that that's the end goal, but there's so much in between there as well. Can you share with me what you think about when you're talking about saving for retirement versus investing for retirement? Well, when you hear the word save, you're putting money into a savings account. That's what people are thinking about when you tell someone, oh, I'm saving money. They don't think, oh, I'm putting money in the stock market. They think, oh, you're diligently putting money into a savings account for an end goal. Now, obviously, retirement goals align with traditional savings goals. Maybe there's something that you want to do in the next six months. And no, you don't want to put any risk on that money. We're not putting it in the stock market. We're going to put it in a nice savings account. Great. But when we use words like save for retirement, and then on top of that, we put the burden on employees to figure out retirement accounts for themselves without a whole lot of explanation, you're going to have people not realizing that you should be investing that money. Now, there have been some tweaks. We've got things such as opt out as opposed to opt in 401k plans. We have plans that automatically put you into a target date fund so that the money is invested. But not every plan does that. Not every employer does that. And that's a huge problem because you end up with people, and these are followers of mine who are in their 20s to 30s, who I do a PSA probably once a month on Instagram. I like, hey guys, make sure you go to your 401k or your IRA today and check and make sure that that money's actually invested. Not sure if it's invested or not. Look and see if the word cash is in front of anything that you have there. If it is, it's probably not invested. Also, if it looks like the same amount of money that was in there last night, last month, probably also not invested because the market's been on a tear lately (laughs) or it just took a dip. It's probably less money. That's really important because I constantly get people that will DM me and say, I didn't know this. My money's just been sitting in cash. And every financial planner I spoke to, an investing expert that I interviewed for Broke Millennial Takes on Investing also had a story like that. And in so many cases, the story was my client was about to retire and it wasn't like a long-term client. These are people who maybe work for like a big brokerage where somebody calls in, they're about to retire, just doing kind of a due diligence check probably never worked with a planner at any point along the way and is checking in on their 401k. And hey, there might be a tidy sum of money in there, might be a quarter of a million bucks. But if you're looking to retire, that wasn't enough because they've been diligently saving as opposed to investing. And words matter. I think it's really empowering too that people can think of themselves like investors. And that's one thing when I went on tour for this book, any room I was in, I would always say, raise your hand if you're an investor. Maybe a handful of hands went up. And then I say, raise your hand if you have a 401k or an IRA that you actively contribute to. Bunch of hands would go up. Say, okay, great, you're investors. 
if that money is invested. And then I would get into talking about this. I think in my experience, saving sounds safe. It sounds stable. It sounds controllable. Um, one of the things that I think I come against with younger investors is putting the money in the stock market feels like they're giving up control, which feels risky. It feels scary. It feels unsettling. And then mix that in with not fully understanding you know, what they're investing in and how they're picking those funds can really add to that anxiety level. Um, one of the things that we try to do with our clients as fiduciaries is have that holistic approach. So even though many of our clients that are actively contributing to 401ks, we can't manage that money for them. We're fiduciaries and, and we feel really strongly that we'd be doing them a disservice if we're not reviewing that plan and talking to them about it and helping them to understand how those contributions are playing into the overall plan. And you're right, you know, oftentimes I do find that when I ask about a 401k, number one, people don't know what percentage they're contributing to. They don't know how much is being matched and they don't know how it's invested, which sometimes that set it and forget it mentality can really be a blessing during market volatility, but only if that upfront work was done correctly and they're positioned well to meet their goals. You know, having a 23-year-old contribute to basically a cash account is, in my mind, the equivalent of putting that money under the mattress, which, yes, they may still be getting that match on it. So essentially, it looks like they're maybe making 3% on that money, but it's not going to help meet those end retirement goals or other goals you know, shorter and more midterm goals that we talk about with our clients too, because it shouldn't all just be saving for retirement. I agree. And I also feel the fear factor is so hard to deal with because you, it's hard to rationalize your way out of someone having a fear response to the market. And there's a couple of different strategies when I try to encourage people to invest. Foundationally education. So what you're already doing is so wonderful because the more you understand it, the less scary it's going to be. But part of that education to me is going into the history of the stock market and understanding the cycles and understanding market corrections and that part of this is normal. And the people who made out in 08 were the people who didn't panic sell everything and understanding why you need to have a balanced, diversified portfolio and understand why not all of your money should be tied up in your company stock on top of the fact that that employer is the one that gives you a salary, kind of explaining all of those parts. But the other one that I really love, and I did not come up with this myself, it's from one of the quoted experts in the book, but the idea that, listen, you don't have to invest. You don't, you can save, but trying to save your way to the same goal is going to be a lot more work. When you put your money in the market, it does some of the heavy lifting for you as opposed to trying to save your way to $1 million, $5 million. That might not even be realistic given as somebody's salary, but when coupled with the stock market and investing it, it's something that actually could be accomplished. Mm -hmm. I think of it as a tool to help you accomplish those goals, not even just the long-term goals of retirement, because obviously, you know, with what you've touched on the book, I tell our clients that Investing is a necessity if you want to meet those retirement goals, because think of the amount of planning and saving that goes into planning for a week-long vacation. Now, think of what goes into a 30-year-long vacation, essentially, in your retirement. We're going to come up across factors like taxes, which is potentially going to be their greatest expense in retirement, but inflation. You know, oftentimes people think, oh, once my kids are through college, that's the big inflationary expense. Well, yes, 
but healthcare with people living longer, um, we're really seeing the impacts of long-term care on portfolios as well. And if those funds aren't invested and growing at a rate long-term, that's going to beat that inflation, it's essentially losing money. So even though that that savings account feels comfortable and safe and stable while sitting in cash, it is losing money over time because of inflation and taxes. Absolutely. And I do also love that you're bringing up how many other goals you can be investing for. That retirement is sort of the big one that we obviously talk about. It is the part in the cliche, low-hanging fruit of investing conversations. But at the end of the day, there are so many different goals and so many other medium, long-term things that are still way ahead of retirement that we need to be investing for. For sure. Well, Erin, thank you so much for sharing um, your insight with us. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with Erin Lowry, author of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Christina Schnuckel, Director of Client Experience and Wealth Advisor here at Ellen Becker Investment Group. I'm here today with Erin Lowry. She is the author of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. Erin, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. And I feel like I want to offer you a job at Ellen Becker because so much of what you've shared today just resonates with how we try to approach our clients and our clients' kids with helping to educate them on how to build that financial security for themselves in the future. You know, understanding that they don't need to be experts, they don't need to know everything today, but constantly working towards that goal of self-advocacy and and, um, taking control of their finances. Before we took a break, we were talking about the difference in terminology between saving for retirement and investing for retirement. And I love that idea that the investing is the key component and retirement we think of as the long-term goal, but we touched a little bit on that retirement is just one of the goals. So we talk with our clients quite a bit about how to plan for some of those other goals such as college savings with their children or even purchasing a new house or a new car or how we budget for those types of things and vacations. What are some of the things that you talk about in your book that might fall more into that short-term goal um, that you talk about with millennials? Because I do feel like when you're starting out investing, sometimes tackling something that might be smaller in their mind than retirement, this big 30-year-long vacation at the end of the line. What are some of the things that you share in your book that um, help talk about the short and the midterm goals? Homeownership's a great one because I think for a lot of people, that could be a five to 10 year away, depending on what age they're picking up the book. And even if they are like myself in their early 30s, it still could be five to 10 years away, depending on you know current climates and where they are and where they live. I live in New York City. The idea of owning a home is pretty outside the realm of possibility. And I do invest for it because I know if I try to just save my way there, I'm going to be 65 before I'm able to buy a home in New York City. Other things, though, too, that I think about are different sort of investing slash tax advantaged accounts like a health savings account that not all of us have access to. But if you do have access to that, that is a huge way to be investing for your future self and honestly, possibly offsetting some of the pain points of your retirement plan 
or the idea of even just starting a family. The cost, not just of, there's so much focus on the cost of a kid, cost of pregnancy isn't always cheap either, especially depending on your health insurance plan. I know people who have gotten bills for 20 to $30,000 after delivering their kid. And that was just getting the kid into the world. Or maybe you're looking at other alternative options such as adoption or surrogacy or IVF. There's so many different expenses that go along to adding to your family. So depending on the timeline of that, could make sense to be investing for it. Now, if it's short-term, for me, I like to think if it's under five years and not flexible, I would be hesitant to put a whole lot of risk on that money. Definitely, if it's three years or less, I'm not putting much risk on it at all. At most, maybe locking it up in a certificate of deposit. But if you're looking at five plus and you have some flexibility on like, hey, the market took a dip right before I planned on using it, I'm gonna actually just stay and hold until it comes back up before I sell. All right. You still should calculate how much risk though you're going to put on it. You don't probably want to be at 100% all high, high risk if it's a short time horizon investment. But you might want to have a little compound interest helping you out as well. Absolutely. And I think that's really important to note that there are varying time horizons when it comes to your needs for investments and what risk you're willing to take. You know, we talk to our clients about once they're taking advantage of that 401k and getting the full match to look at what other options are available to save for them for both retirement, but also some of their shorter term goals. When we're looking at money that could potentially be used, you know, within that five-year period, even though they may be a 23-year-old who's, you know, in their first job, if this is money they need within five years, well, we may recommend that 401k is aggressive because it's going to be growing for 40 years. Um, their other funds should be invested really conservatively because you never want to invest something for the short term that you're not willing to lose. Yes, which is such a great thing to consider. And I also think about that a lot when people talk to me about what I would consider speculative asset classes. So your cryptocurrencies or your cannabis or anything like that, the mm -hmm. thought of like, well, these are getting talked about a lot. These are in the news all the time. Is this how I should be investing? How much are you willing to lose, right? Some of those might take off and you might make a lot of money and some might go belly up. So it really is a consideration of if you're going to put money into something that's a bit untested, a bit unknown, and you're going to take that kind of risk, not dissimilar to... I'm going to give my friend money for them to start up a business and they've come to me with a full business plan and a proposal and I'm going to be an investor, not my friend is selling me some sort of product and claiming that I am now an investor. <laughs> In those situations, you really do need to be considering, can I afford to lose this money compared to the idea of having a well-balanced, well-diversified, looking at sort of the legacy type of investments that have a lot of history and data behind them. And that's an incredibly important thing to consider. When it comes to investing, we really feel like slow and steady wins the race there. Um, you know, and there's definitely been some clients who maybe haven't worked with us before because our investment philosophy isn't as aggressive as what they were looking for. The chances of me being able to pick a stock that becomes the next Apple is pretty slim. And it's the same for them trying to pick that stock on their own too. Yet because those are the stocks that grab the headlines, Bitcoin, the meme stocks that you mentioned, those are the ones that grab the headline. It makes us think that it's easier to do than it actually is. And yes, you may get lucky. You may buy that stock at $2 a share, but it turns into the next Apple. But more often than not, those companies tend to go belly up. 
So diversification is, is key when looking at how to diversify those risks. Absolutely. And making sure that if you are going to play around with a little bit of stock picking, if it's something that's interesting to you, I would set aside a small amount of money that it's just your educational expenses, if you will. You can afford to lose it, but you want to be hands-on about it. But also consider that if this is already making headlines, it's probably a little too late. Like you want to be finding the things before they are splashed all over every single media outlet that we read. And that kind of goes back to any version of stock advice all the way to we think about Great Depression and the shoeshine boy was the classic example of when your shoeshine boy is giving you stock tips, something is coming and it's usually not a positive something. So Mm -hmm. it is just important to think about with the meme stocks and any way that you're getting financial information. I love social media. I am very active on social media. There are some great ways to receive financial advice on social media. Always vet it, always check multiple sources and be really careful if it's investing advice that you're getting on social media. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of our clients have struggled with knowing where to go to find good information and accurate information that's not misleading because there is a wealth of information out there, but kind of weeding through that to know the advice that makes sense. We encourage our clients and our clients' kids that they basically have us on retainer. Use us as your financial gurus. Call and ask me questions about buying a house, getting life insurance, if I should invest in this stock. We'll give you our honest opinion. Or if it's something that I'm not an expert in and I don't know, I'll at least be able to direct you into a knowledgeable source that's going to give you good, unbiased information. Because I think that's kind of the key when it comes to investing is being unbiased. Most people out there putting out newsletter articles, those types of things, there's an agenda behind that that's kind of driving it. So it can be really difficult to get that unbiased advice, which was what was so refreshing about your book, Erin, is that you really provided that completely unbiased advice. You say, I'm not a financial advisor, but these are the principles that everyone can take and employ and use for their lifetime. So with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with Erin Lowry, author of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Christina Schnuckel, Director of Client Experience and a Wealth Advisor here at Ellen Becker Investment Group. My guest today has been Erin Lowry. She is the author of Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. Erin, it's been so refreshing to talk to you today about your book. I felt like when reading your book, it was really like I was having a conversation with a friend. Um, Everything from covering the terminology that investors come up against that can be really intimidating to the anxiety that comes with market corrections and not knowing whether or not you're doing the right thing. I wanted to ask you, there are so many great points in your book, but what are some of the the biggest topics that you get asked about by young investors that contact you, email you? What are you getting asked today? Big one is about debt and investing. And particularly, I feel that this comes from the fact that there are other established personal finance experts who make a big point out of you should not be investing until you are 100% debt-free. And I find that advice, frankly, to be a bit problematic because I have people that will email me and say something along the lines of, hey, I have student loans, so should I really be investing? Does that actually make any sense? Yeah, it probably does. 
And if you are waiting until you pay off your student loans, that could be two full decades from the time that you graduate college, if not longer. Lost time for sure. That is something that you can't double down on. That's an example that I always love giving is trying to double the amount that you're putting into your 401k in the future and how that person very rarely catches up with the slow and steady, small incremental amounts in the beginning. I understand the anxiety. I understand the feeling of like, you just want to pay off the debt. So I do like to separate this into two different versions of investing, the retirement part and then the taxable investing, the non-retirement investing. And for anybody who has student loans, you should still be investing for retirement, particularly if you have an employer matched 401k. You absolutely should be taking advantage. It's tax advantage. You should be taking advantage that way. You should get that match. And you don't have to, let's say your employer matches you at 5% and you're like, listen, I need a bit extra in my paycheck. I can't even do 5% right now. That's okay. Start at one, start at two. Just something little. So you're still putting money in, you're getting a match. So great. You put in one, they match at one, you're already at 2%. And maybe every six months, push up your contribution by half a percent. I love the slow and steady push as opposed to, I haven't been contributing at all. Now I'm going to do 15%. That's going to feel like shock and awe to your budget. You're all of a sudden going to feel a lot of deprivation because you can't buy the things that you were used to buying, or you can't pay the bills in the way you were, you were used to paying them. So slow and steady incremental can be great. And if you are not traditionally employed, like myself, you need to be looking at whether it's a traditional or Roth IRA or a separate simple IRA, some other version that you are your own employer. You need to also make sure you are contributing to your future for retirement and that you are investing in that way. Now, once we're doing that, I definitely understand the feeling of, I just want these student loans gone. And if it's not student loans, whatever debt it is, I want it gone. Now this becomes a math equation and a psychology equation. If we're looking at it from a math perspective, if you have student loans that are federal student loans that are under a 5% interest rate, then, hey, it might make sense mathematically to be investing outside of your retirement accounts. You might come out ahead. But if that idea gives you a little bit of hives, like if you're already feeling a little stressed and itchy by me just saying that, that's okay. It's okay if you can't sleep at night because you have that student loan debt and you want to focus on paying that off. I don't know anyone that's regretted aggressively paying off student loan debt, my husband and I included, but please make sure you're still investing for retirement in tandem. Now, if you have credit card debt, if you have something that's really high interest rate, that math's not going to work out in your favor. You don't want to be throwing all this extra money that you might have into the stock market outside of your retirement account. If you have something sitting at 18, 20, 25, 30% APR on your credit card, you want to be aggressively paying off those credit cards first. To borrow a phrase from my book, you need to earn the right to invest. Paying off credit card debt is part of that. Absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly on that, Erin. You know, we talk a lot about opportunity cost. And in some of those lower interest rate environments where you can potentially earn more in the market consistently, you come out ahead by still saving for retirement while you're paying down that debt. It's the same conversation we have right now with at least once a week, I get the question of, should I pay off my mortgage? Or can I just take money out of my portfolio and pay off my house? And the truth of it is, is that's an emotional decision because it feels good to have a house paid off. 
our founder, Karen Allenbecker, has said it on the air before. You can't eat your house. You can't spend your house. So at the end of the day, having a paid up house really just means you're going to pass a paid up house to somebody. For the majority of our clients, when we frame it in that viewpoint, the cash flow becomes much more important to them than having that paid up house. So, you know, it all comes down to those interest rates. I'm very happy that you touched on the credit card debt because I think that is something that younger investors are struggling more with. Just the availability of credit that maybe a couple of decades ago wasn't really an issue. When you were coming out of college, when I was coming out of college, they weren't as willing to give you as much credit, essentially, as, as you could have. Um, but that's something that we see that can really be problematic, not just during those initial years, but long-term. So do you talk in your book at all about budgeting and tracking? We call it a cash flow, but tracking your cash flow, because oftentimes I find that the clients that come in that have high credit card debt, it wasn't just a one-time run-up. This was something that systematically they've been dealing with of pay it off, charge it up, pay it off, charge it up. And that's a daunting process and can really eat away at your confidence when trying to save for retirement. It can. And I talk about budgeting a lot in my first book, Broke Millennial, and then also a bit in my third book, Broke Millennial Talks Money. And that's more about how to talk to your partner or other people in your life about your budget and setting your boundaries about what you can and can't afford. I actually have an article coming out in Bloomberg. It'll be out by the time this episode airs. It talks about the fact that social obligations are a big part of the reason that a lot of people end up missing their financial goals. You hear a lot of talk about the lattes and the avocado toast, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. It's that conversation about small leaks sink great ships, right? Like that's something that you hear a lot from personal finance experts. Oh, you're just wasting money here and there on these small things. And that's true. But if I bought an expensive latte five days a week for the whole year, it's less than $2,000. I have spent over $2,000 on weddings just this year, and I'm only two in of the eight I was invited to. So that is what you really need to be thinking about is also like how to set your boundaries, how to communicate those boundaries, how to allow yourself a level of vulnerability to say, I cannot afford this. And you don't have to use that language, but truly boundary setting to me and learning how to communicate more efficiently about money is a huge part of this. Now, in the first book, I do break down a variety of budgeting styles. I too like to use the term cash flow because it just sounds better because everybody hates the B word. There's also spending plans. There's a bunch of different ways to rebrand it. At the end of the day, how much is coming in, how much is going out. And if you're in the negatives, we need to fix something. And I also think it's incredibly important to realize as your life changes and evolves, so too should your budget or how your cash flow operates. What I used when I first moved to New York City is a completely different style than I use now making five times what I made then and being married. So it is important to always know you can change if a certain style doesn't work for you, pivot and try something else. That doesn't mean you're bad at budgeting. It means that particular style was not for you. That's so true. The budgets are going to change. And my husband and I were just having this conversation the other day because our youngest is three. So we have just a few more years to go before we're out of those daycare expenses. And so our budget will be going in the opposite direction that will have more cash flow at that point in time. But I'm sure that'll get replaced with something else like summer camps or after school care or something else. So I think it is important to know that it's going to change over time. I think that's one of my favorite takeaways from the investing book is that so many people put off investing 
thinking that when I have more money, that's when I'll do it. But life tends to get more expensive, not less, because you make certain choices, things happen, life changes and evolves. So even if you're making more, and it might not even just be a keeping up with the Joneses thing, it just might be more expensive. You bought a house, you had kids, things happen. So just keeping that in mind to start early and be consistent with investing. True. The longer you wait to put good spending habits in place, the harder it is to implement those habits for sure. Erin, I, I so enjoyed having you on today and reading your books. Where can our readers find your books? You can find the books wherever books are sold. So whether that's Amazon or hopefully your local bookstore as well. And don't forget to check out your local library. And if it's not there, you can always request it. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Money Sense airs on Saturdays from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. and on Sundays from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. If you like today's show and you want to know more, please visit our website at www.ellenbecker.com or call us at 262-691-3200. As always, I hope that we've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen.